My name is Anna Janssen and I live in Ibiza and I moved here 1974, I think, from Amsterdam. And the reason I came here, actually there was no reason. I left Holland with my, uh, the father of my children and I had no children yet then. We bought a Volkswagen bus and we went direction sunshine. Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And I'm recording today's episode, uh, or this introduction, uh, overlooking the beautiful, um, sunny Manchester City. Never thought those words would actually come out of my mouth. Uh, I do recall probably about 12 years ago, um, just before I left England to come and live in Ibiza, that I left my job at BBC Six Music and the entirety of the BBC was moving to Manchester. That's why I left. And they kind of said, you know, obviously you can keep your job, but you've got to move to Manchester because the entire network is moving up to Salford, uh, just outside of the city. And I considered it deeply and it seemed unlikely that Manchester was going to be a place that would suit me. And so I came up and I spent a week here. And my logic was that if it rained more than it was anything else, that that would be my answer and I came up for a week and I spent seven days sitting in um, the gloom and the dark and the wet weather and that was my decision made basically and actually that's probably one of the reasons (laughs) I ended up moving to the sunshine instead. Um, Manchester has its own microclimate. Um, I was warned and um, I just know that you know my kind of need for sunshine is is pretty um, serious in this lifetime so that was the end of that um, but it's funny waking up here overlooking the whole city which is basking in this gorgeous gorgeous sunshine and you just think mm, was that the right decision but I think absolutely no regrets absolutely not um, but it did make me chuckle and just the oh the irony of uh, waking up to um, really beautiful beautiful weather um, it also kind of leads me on to the introduction for today's episode, which is with an amazing guest called Anna Janssen. Um, she's been living on Ibiza since 1974. And one of the things that she says is that when she took off um, in her camper van from Holland, from Amsterdam, she said she took direction sunshine, which I thought was brilliant. And that's how she ended up um, it, living in Ibiza. It certainly wasn't planned. It was just one of those things. Um, so, you know, it can happen to the best of us. It can also happen to you. I don't know if you're actually thinking about moving to the island. Um, if you do have any questions on that, you can always DM me on Instagram at the Reset Rebel or come and join our Reset Rebel retreat from the 9th and the 12th to the 12th of September. Um, we're going to have three nights over one weekend away um, together, hiking, doing some yoga and basically just hanging out, uh, going to an electronic dance music meditation, eating some incredible food, um, visiting Nobu, and just spending some time hanging out around um, by the glorious swimming pool that our residents there in the north of the island close to Portonach. There is one bed left. Um, the original price for that was 999. We've taken that down now to 699 just to see if we can fill this last space. So if you do fancy joining us and it does appeal um, drop me a little email to joe at joyoule.co.uk. Okay, on with the show. 
So we did the whole coast, Holland, Belgium, France, then Portugal, Spain, and we were on our way to Greece, and we went through Spain, and we had a friend living in, in Ibiza, and I said, oh, let's pop over there for a minute and then go on to Spain. And then when we were here, I said, stop, I'm not going anywhere else. People ask me, why are you here? This was the place. I mean, what did it, you know, where did you come into? Did you come on to the, the port of uh, Ibiza town on a, on a ferry? Yeah, came in on the, por- in, on the port. Then uh, we met some people. We had our Volkswagen bus. They were very nice. They said we could camp in the back garden of their finca in the countryside. And the reason I liked it so much here, because first of all, it was very international, but there were a lot of crazy people here. And I'm a little bit crazy myself, and I felt right at ease. I didn't have to explain myself. When I go back home to Holland, always have to explain myself. They don't get it. (laughs) Here, everybody gets everything, and that's why I'm here. That's a very nice summation, I think, and, and a very nice way to put, I think, you know, the eclecticism of the people that reside here. And I think the number one thing that I also feel between the time that I split between here and Goa is exactly the same feeling of like, yeah, there is no questions asked about you prancing down the high street half naked or doing weird spiritual practice in the, on, on the beach at five o'clock in the morning. It is everything is kind of s- strangely accepted. Strangely accepted and very nice accepted by the locals because the Ibisenkos uh, always said in those days, and they still do, because they were talking about the hippies, you know, the long-haired ones, they called them at the time, and hippies, look, you're allowed to do anything you like as long as you don't hurt anybody. And I like that a lot. When you go to Palma or Mallorca, it's a little bit different. And Formentera is a little bit the same. It just looks a bit different, but they have the same mentality and then the fourth island Menorca I have never been to and I'm definitely promised myself to go there this year mm. to find that out but here it was there was the tolerance and um, before this I lived in Amsterdam and um, that's also quite famous for its tolerance and I like that you know and that's that's for me that's the attraction mm. Well, how could you describe, I mean, you say you met some people and they invited you to, you know, camp out in the backyard of their finger. I mean, what, what did the island look like when you pulled in on that ferry and you started to drive around? Well, it looked absolutely beautiful, first of all. I mean, the Mediterranean, the island, the looks, it was uh, summertime. It was absolutely amazing. So we went swimming, eating, meeting people. It was very, very cheap. You could live a long time here for, very little money there weren't even many cars Santa Olalia where I live now now it's a town I feel like I'm a city girl now and <laughs> I lived in the campo before but this was a little place that you would visit it had one telephone in the center of town and um, that was it we had no phones where I lived in my finca eventually we had no electricity and um it was very appealing. Everything slowed down a lot. I didn't have children yet. I didn't have to do anything. We just had to think of how shall we live? How can we earn some money? And we've I had quite an enterprising husband, I have to say. Boyfriend, later husband. Also later, he went out. But uh, at, in those days, we um, got ourselves the license to do a windsurfing school because that had just started and there was no windsurfing school yet 
So we had a wonderful windsurfing school at Calaleña. And the whole nice thing about that was, apart from the fact that we didn't even know how to do it, so we went to San Antonio to the other side of the island and took lessons, and then quickly, <laughs> the next day, we were teaching people on the beach how to do it. So it was quite an adventure. Nobody knew that. We bluffed all our way through, but the nice thing was there was a club, Calaleña, where hundreds and hundreds of people came for a holiday, and the club had advertised windsurfing. But we had the license. So that was amazing. So they had to send all their people to us. <laughs> so we did a roaring business. And after two years, they really, really, really wanted to have our business. So we sold it for a lot of money. And then we left. <laughs> and then we went to South Africa. And there was the next adventure. Now my husband was South African originally and he became Dutch through me later in the years but his family lived there and he said let's go check it out I had never been there and so then over there we bought a Volkswagen van and we just traveled all of South Africa through the desert along the coast it was absolutely lovely and then well, after we'd done that and I met the whole family we came back and then I started having children what made you decide to obviously return to Ibiza? I mean, how are you feeling about the island when you were over in South Africa? South Africa was really a holiday, but the holiday was, in the end, at least three or four months. And it was very appealing to me. It was very, very interesting. But this is where I wanted to be. That was just very clear to me. This was my base. I never said this is where I want to be forever because I'm a traveler and we traveled a lot more after, but so I always said, this is my base, and I really wanted to come back to here. And then, but then when I had, when my daughter was born, when she was four months old, my husband's mother was not very well, she was sick, and he said, let's go there, I want to be with her, I think she's going to die. And we went there just for that, and then we decided, oh, let's live here. So... I then spent almost three years there. And we went around, went to the Campo to south of Natal, found what they call a small, hold, a small holding, and we started a chicken farm. 15,000 chickens. That was the next adventure. <laughs> Why did you start a chicken farm? Because the small holding had chicken runs. So he said, hey, why don't we put chickens in it? We don't have to build those anymore. That spontaneous is how we lived, really. And we lived on the Transkei border. Transkei was the independent, or is the independent, black uh, country. And they had um, built a holiday in there with gambling, where you could gamble. And gambling was forbidden in South Africa. So just over that border was a big holiday inn with a gambling. So all the South Africans came there to gamble. And all the rich South Africans, all of a sudden, all wanted to buy a house or a small holding. And so what happened after two and a half years of uh, having the chicken farm, we could sell it for a fortune because <laughs> the holiday inn was there with the gambling and everybody wanted to have a second house to do that. So that's what we did. And then we came back to Europe. It sounds like a very amazing kind of flow, you know, fluid um, trail yeah. of events. 
Well, it was. If I say it like this, of course, there were little thingies in between that, that I can't think of right now. But well, like looking after 15,000 chickens, that doesn't sound like fun. Well, when you live in South Africa, I have to say this was during apartheid. So you had a lot of help. So we had at least 15 people working for us. Nice people that we, uh, my ex-husband who came from there spoke, uh, you know, closer, closer, you, you have to closer, and Zulu, and he could uh, handle those people very well. He became very friendly with them and they loved him. And they were all very honest and working very hard. So that way we could do that. And those chickens, we got them alive like baby chicks and then we sold them also alive and it was basically black trade from all the people that lived in the huts around us in the jungle and everything they would come and then then pick a chicken under the arm and then they left so we didn't have to kill any chickens and also we didn't you know they came as little chicks they were free-range chickens and so it wasn't You know, we had to supervise it, obviously, which I didn't. I had my daughter, my husband did all that. And uh, for the rest, yeah, it went quite smooth, actually. Next to a banana plantation, which were full of monkeys, which was quite an experience as well, to chase the monkeys away from the house. But yeah, it was an adventure. Adventure, yeah. It sounds like an adventure, but I mean, how would you compare, I mean, if you're saying that, you, you know, that was like apartheid times, like to come back, to an island like this one after living in such kind of draconian measures? Well, it was, you know, in the beginning, I didn't see all of that because I saw the beauty of the of the country. We went to the parks and, 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 and traveled a lot. And it was just so beautiful. I've never seen such a beautiful country as Africa. I mean, it's amazing. But after a while, it started to bug me a little bit that, um, and I had a lot of Afrikaners living around Afrikaners really are from Dutch descent and I was never telling anybody that I was from Dutch descent I always pretended I was British (laughs) because they were tough ones racists a lot you know and it was beginning to bug me a little bit and then my youngest brother wrote me in a a letter or something or a call because I don't think we were even on on the internet yet um, that he became a lawyer and he, he was giving throwing a party because he passed and he was a lawyer and there was a big party and I said you know what let's go to the party in Amsterdam let's surprise him mm-hmm. so I went there and it was great and I saw a lot of old friends and I said hmm now I know what I missed I'm not going back I never went back <laughs> I came with a suitcase I stayed back to the island never went back Mm -hmm. he went back to sell the furniture or give it away or whatever I said no I don't need any I don't I don't get attached to things and the rest are memories and they're beautiful and I like to keep it like that but I'm not going back there so what was it that you felt like you'd missed or what was it that you didn't want to return to I missed the connection I had with people here real connection I found it there quite artificial Um, Look, I lived among a lot of farmers and I don't want to put those guys down, but it was all about the chickens and the farmland and everything else. So very soon, of course, I had a girl for my daughter who had her on her bum all day long. 
Then I had another one who was cleaning the house, and the minute I put my cup of tea down, they already, you know, I, there was nothing to do for me, so I joined the local tennis club. And soon I won all the tennis matches from the women because really they were there talking about recipes and um, God knows what. So then I joined the men but because they it was more interesting to play, but then the women didn't like me anymore because she was like chasing, <laughs> you know. And it was all a bit quite small-time-ish thinking, and um, as long as I made them laugh and told them funny stories about here, there, and the other, it was all very, very nice. But going to a party, all the women in one corner exchanging their recipes and all the men over there. So the first time I came, I went straight to the men and <laughs> well, I was not done. And so I didn't anymore because I, I wanted to be nice. But I said, that's it. I'm not going there anymore. That's not me. So there was a lot of that going on. Quite uh, very different. The opposite from here, from Ibiza. What did you feel about that segregation, not just of the men and the women, but the white and the black? Yeah, the white and the black, funnily enough, uh, I, I thought that it, it was in my face in the beginning because you go in a bus and then it says whites only or whites in the front and blacks in the back and the same in the train. That was quite shocking to me. Toilets, you know, toilets for whites, toilets for blacks. That was all in my face. I didn't like that very much. But where we lived, there was quite an underground scene and with some nice white people and a lot of very nice black people and we were invited to go to this underground basically for the music because the music was amazing we always had to be aware that it could be raided because you were not allowed to mix to me. I was never afraid because I said, well, let them come. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm speaking to a black person, so what? You know, coming from here, you can't even perceive that, but th th that was there. And um, and they were all smoking marijuana because they grow that everywhere. And yeah, I quite like that too. So, <laughs> And it, that was real nice. It was a real underground scene. And there, there was no black and white story going on there at all. But when you were again in your like your normal life then I had a lot about those stupid remarks and this kaffir they called them kaffirs horrible it, it it became more and more something in my face I didn't like and my my husband at the time he didn't like it anymore he said bugger that he said that's it that's it I don't like this anymore and but I had no idea when I went to Holland to this party and I saw some old friends, and I saw my family, and there was a real connection. Again, I didn't have to explain myself, real connection, not everybody asked me where, what you're going to do. I said, yeah, that's it, I'm not going back, actually. What, you leave? I said, no, I'm going to stay here, and then I'm going to go back to the island, because we had a place which we had rented out temporarily just for the adventure. Because when we went there, we thought we only go for three, four months because his mother was not well. But then, very spontaneously, we decided, hey, let's live here for a while, you know. So, yeah, that's really what 
what was it, the connection between people, a lovely, between good friends. I missed some friends and some nice talk where you're on the same level because I was never on the same level there, ever. Nice, yes, but people would be very friendly and very nice, but there was such a difference, so I just went like that, you know, because otherwise it was too hard. So, I mean, when you arrived here in 1974, I mean, that was really the very, very, very early stages of tourism beginning to arrive on the island. But when you came back from South Africa, presumably that was starting to become a real, you know, spreading of the economy in terms of like the monetization of the way this island actually created its its own, you know, economical structure. Yeah, I know that it definitely had grown a lot, although, I mean, the first hippies were here in the late 50s already, and then in the 60s it was already quite popular among musicians and artists. There were a lot of artists, photographers, um, yeah, again, quite uh, special people that can't, cannot necessarily immediately connect with everybody else but here they could and they found each other and it was very very interesting for us also in the beginning when we were here to meet so many artists here and by the way and that I'm jumping back a little bit but because you mentioned Bob R. Marley just now I went to that concert of Bob Marley in the ring in the bull ring and that was uh, that was amazing <laughs> that was just amazing going to have to tell us a bit more about that because obviously we have a whole episode on this series about that gig in 1978 at the Espritet Old Bull Ring and obviously it's not there anymore it's a car park but what was it like when you walked into the into the ring that night well I, I what I can't remember and what really intrigues me and maybe you know that is there was a group of guys young guys playing before Bob Marley started to warm up the thing and I think I still think it was you too but I mean like 16 17 18 I would have to actually ask you too to find out if that was true well, I'll give Bono a buzz and uh, I'll let you know Why don't you do that because really that's like that in my head um unless it was the police or but some it was a group that now is very very famous and yeah to see Bob Marley I mean everybody was stoned out of their heads I like to be stoned but I don't like to be legless I just like you know to be part of the whole atmosphere but um, it was it was very thrilling because it seemed we were so close and it you know we all love his music and um, to be all together there and then in that bull ring and everybody the same and there was everybody huh? from from the most famous person to whatever. We were all there dancing on the same music and there was an incredible vibe. And I realized how lucky I was to be here and to live here. Many, many years later, after he had passed away, his whole band came here 
well, maybe that's 10 years ago or something. I can't remember now, but have to look it up. The whole band came and they did a concert in Formentera, which was really nice. And I thought, well, I have to go there because of the memory and everything. And everybody else wanted to go there. So we all took boats out there. <laughs> and then the concert started around mid midnight and it was finished around two or three. And there were no boats going back. They had forgotten, sort of. And we had to stay there until seven in the morning, waiting for a boat. They, they had not thought of that. <laughs> that was very funny, but also very Ibiza style. So it was okay. We were all sleeping right close next to each other because it's freezing cold. But that was, that was very, very lovely. And the whole memory of the of the Bob Marley concert, of course, came back. And it was a very nice place in San Francisco, just outside a little town. And we were all dancing again. And yeah, very good. I mean, it's just, yeah, obviously tragic what happened to Bob with his, yeah. you know, his toe. It could have been so easily avoided. I mean, I've actually had a, a little lump on my boob this week, which I am going to talk about because I just feel like, you know, you've got to go and get these things checked. You can't just bury your head in the sand like Bob did and uh, like I was tempted to do. So yeah. go and check, get your bits checked, people. Yeah. Um, also, I, you know, you talk about this bull ring and I guess that you were here maybe when there was still bullfighting on Ibiza, which is, feels like a very alien concept these days. I never liked that, so I never went there. But there was bullfighting. I had a friend in Madrid who was a photographer who who did a lot of photos on bullfighting. And I, I had these mixed feelings about the bullfighting. You know, there is a whole religion behind it. And it's sacrilegious to say anything bad about bullfighting to the Spanish. But I really didn't feel it like that. I thought it was quite, you know, savage and mean. So I never saw a bullfight. I didn't, I didn't like it. That's my point of view on that. But I do know, I mean, never go into in, in a discussion with a Spaniard because then they start. And I have an amazing book because I did buy the book from my friend and she has made amazing pictures about bullfightings and about the guys and the expression in their face and everything. But no, it's not my cup of tea. I mean, it's definitely savage and it's definitely wrong and I'm not afraid to say it. Um, but I would love to do the bull run of Pamplona just because I think it looks like <laughs> a lot of fun. But I, I wouldn't do it because, again, I'm really, really against the cruelty. Yeah, yeah, it's the cruelty that's uh, that got me. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's yes or no, you know, and I chose for no. And even in Pamplona, yeah, well, it might be very nice to, 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 to see what's going on there, the vibe, but again... I would hate one of those bulls seeing just pulled down and it's sad, it's sad, we can't, it's not fair. No, it's just gratuitous entertainment and it's extremely unnecessary and thank God we don't have a bull ring here anymore in Ibiza and, you know, I would say probably there's a good chunk of this island, if not, you know, a good third of it, probably more the hippie and expat community that are definitely kind of, you know, on the vegan, vegetarian vibe. I mean, there's a very hippie side of the island that still exists I mean even though it's not like it was when as you say it started up in the 50s but it's definitely there is an element of that undercurrent that still resides here and is that you know something that you still align with now? Well it was very very hippie at the time I don't think I was ever a real real hippie my son always introduces me so this is my mum the hippie but then he says 
she was a hippie, but she did quite well. <laughs> now, there still are some, some hippies, but it's more hippie chic these days. It's moved on, you know. So, and what is a hippie anyway? Because in the old days, they thought a hippie was somebody with long hair. Well, it wasn't really. It was really a free-spirited person. And of course, now we still have a lot of free-spirited persons. And um, yeah, but it's hip. It's chic. It's it's more hippie chic. I've got a thing on the wall there. I'm a happy hippie. <laughs> My son put that there. And uh, yeah, I am. I'm a happy hippie. But I don't think I was ever. I didn't. I tried once to live in a commune, but I was not here. I went traveling in San Francisco, and I wanted to experience that. But soon I found out that there was a hierarchy there, and there was this one <laughs> Jesus-type guy in charge, and all the women had to sort of do what he wanted to do. So when I did not want to do that, I basically had to leave the commune. So I thought, okay, well that's how that works. Not my thing. I'm very independent, free thinking. I travel on my own. I've traveled the world. I've lived in 12 different countries, I think. And I love traveling alone because then I meet many more people. Because I'm not a loner. I, I'm social and I love to meet people. And I go to a place where I know nothing. I feel that I can walk up to somebody and say, listen, what? What's going on here? Can you let me know something? It's so beautiful, or what's? And that way, you often uh, meet lovely, lovely people. So, um, how did you meet your husband? <laughs> at the time, I was working in the tourist office in Amsterdam, which at the time was on the main square, the Dam Square. If you've ever been to Amsterdam, no, it has one main square. It's the Dam Square. And the head office was there, and it had many other offices, but that was the head office. So tourists would always come to the VVV tourist office. To get that job, you had to speak four languages minimum. More, even better, but four minimum. I spoke six, so I got the job. And um, at one point, you know, you sit with different people behind the counter and the tourists come in and they want to know where can they go, which hotel can they go to, what can they do, what's the sightseeing, they want to have a free map, blah, 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 blah. And there he was and he said, I'm looking for Anna. I said, well, yeah, that's me. He said, yeah, well, such and such uh, told me about you. I said, okay, um, what, what do you want? <laughs> He said, well, maybe we can go out for a drink. I said, no, thank you very much. Next one. <laughs> and that went on for a while. He came back every day. <laughs> he came back every day. And at one point I thought, okay. So I went out with him. And he was extremely, was, is funny. Very funny. His sense of humor was amazing. But I didn't really feel anything else. But he insisted and persisted I think is what you can say and um, yeah one thing led to the other he was just very interesting he was mad he was mad as a hatter but that's I quite like that I'm quite attracted to the madness in people he was intelligent 
And I found out that we made a very good pair because he was wild, he was not realistic, but had brilliant ideas, and I was the grounding factor and the put the brake on. And together we did some amazing things. Why would you say he's mad as a hatter? Oh, he had such wild ideas. Like driving to Ibiza? Yeah, no, that we, we did that ourselves, uh, together, you know. Although, I have to say, we had a Volkswagen bus, but then he had his motorbike and he really liked it, so he bought a thing, a, a trailer behind it, so the motorbike was behind the Volkswagen bus, and then he wanted to really make like a little living room in the, <laughs> in the van, so he built a bed on top. So by the time he did all that, it looked absolutely amazing. But when we left, we couldn't go faster than 50 or 60 k an hour because it was top heavy. But it was really, really fun. So now I'm saying that was something I totally agreed with because I didn't know. And he could build all that himself. He could build anything with his hands. He was also a good musician. And, uh, he, al- it, and he also saw an opportunity. He always saw an opportunity of uh, maybe making some money or doing something interesting. But when I had met him at the time, and he was actually quite cheeky, he had, he was, he had no money. He had met somebody in the desert in Morocco who knew me. And that sounded so interesting to me that he came all the way to Amsterdam and stood in line in the tourist office to meet me. I mean, that's a bit mad, no? And then he just, he said, well, I've got this feeling. Then he stayed in a little hotel where he didn't pay all that much, but he, he said, look, you guys have to do this, this and that, and you'll, you'll, I have a connection with the tourist office. And I think if you're on the list of the tourist office, you'll get much more personnel. And then if I arrange that for you, you can give me a bed free to stay here and all of a sudden and that's after he saw me twice and he said you've got to come with me you've got to say that you know me very well and tell him that you're working with the tourist office and I said fuck <laughs> I thought let's see what that is all about and sure enough he had the gift of the gap let's put it that way that was five almost six years uh, a lot of fun I have to say quite extreme things that we did I'm trying to think of some other things but well, when we were the first time in South Africa, it's just coming up now, and we had a van, we, uh, when we went to the Transkei, which is the country for the black people, so when you go as a white person, you stick out a bit. And we went to a bar to have a drink, and then we were going to go travel through the country to the coastline, and apparently there was an English settlement there and they had English radio and they had England. that's where we're going to head for but we were in this bar and he overheard because I was only speaking English with him but he could speak Zulu and Swahili so he said to me um, I will give you a sign in a minute and then we have to leave and you're going to drive as fast as you can and I'm going to sit with the gun in the back because these guys, they want to go after you. Okay, so we did. And we, we drove for hours until, and then he was shouting at me. He said, go, when you see a back road or a dirt road, go in there, switch the lights off and then, 
And this is and we were followed. We were followed for a long time and then we went off the road in the dark, in the jungle, switched the light off and <laughs> just waited and didn't say anything. And these guys went on and the luck was they were very, very drunk. So they gave up. And with the early morning hours, I'll never forget that, when soon the light was there and we could know where, we went back to the main road and we just drove all the way to the coastline where, um, yeah, that was an extreme little thing. I said, what? And we did have, he had a shotgun in the back, but it's very normal there to have a shotgun, you know, to defend yourself, but also for snakes and things, to sh- shoot them. Well, there's quite a lot of snakes on this island right now, apparently. Yeah, but they're not deadly. They don't kill you. No. No, I don't think so. No, it's not. They're not poisonous. They, maybe you can be allergic to a bite or something, but it's not. Uh, they're not that that bad. But I think they used to be, according to the other wonderful podcast that exists on this island called Ibisology by William Beecham, and basically he did a whole episode on how this like snake epidemic is really taking over the island and they're not just the little tiny olive like snakes that used to come in on the trees they've grown into these huge great big you know beasts i know i've heard about that but they are trying to do something about it i don't know exactly what this is an interesting uh, interesting thing to think about you just don't think of ibiza as uh, having a lot of snakes i guess no one really talks about that because it's um yeah it's just one of those things that is is probably not mentioned it's not good for tourism um i think you know when you say that um you guys were obviously quite enterprising and you decided to get this license for the windsurfing i mean you know when you think about doing something like that now it's kind of almost nigh on impossible to get a license for anything but very interesting i think back then for you guys to get that license and actually have the one and only license for the whole of the beach in Calalenya. very very interesting it was interesting he talked to some spanish people and the spanish told him that he could do that and it had to be 49 51 percent as well the spanish person was still 51 percent in charge we were the 41 49 to run it but together they went to get the license in those days because yeah we, we were not common market yet and things like that afterwards you can do we had the same rights as the spanish but in those days not yet on top of it, he was a South African, and a South African wasn't even allowed to be to stay here more than three months. But at the same time, you could do whatever you wanted here because everything was allowed. It was like this, you know. And uh, so, yeah, so it took us a whole winter, and then we had the license. We had four licenses, and we leased three out, and we ran one ourselves. It's amazing that that happened, yeah. So what a nice... I was working myself as a, in a, for a travel agent, a Dutch travel agent, and I was just uh, meeting the people at the airport and bringing them to their hotels and this, that, and the other. And then after work, I would go join him, and often he said, come over, because I don't understand these people. Uh, a lot of German, French, whatever, and so he could use me for the languages, but mostly they had to see what they had to do, so it wasn't all that difficult, but every now and then I would do that. Yeah. Why was it that you spoke six languages? Where did that come from? Where are your parents from? Well, my parents are Dutch. Um, I tell you what, in the days that I went to school, uh, you had to learn three foreign languages. Everybody. Now, some people can do languages easy and some people not. That was the only thing I could do really well in school, basically. (laughs) 
and it was French, German and English. And then there's the Dutch, of course. So I spoke four to start off with. And after school, I went to Italy and I stayed there almost three years. And the first year I went to Florence and I learned Italian properly. So I got my Italian certificate. So then I spoke five. Aviano shikare tu davvero saporito. I always thought I would end up in Italy, in Toscana somewhere between the sunflowers, but I ended up here. So I thought, well, I speak fluent French and Italian, Spanish is not going to be too hard. So I did a course and every now and then when my kids come, they say, Mom, I don't know what you're saying. It sounds Spanish, but really. <laughs> I said, well, they understand me, you know, because it's a combination of Italian and French, and I make it sound Spanish. But I'm pretty good. I would think 85% Spanish is good, is, is good. But I never really, really studied it like I studied all the other languages. So yeah, that's how I got to learn that. So Dutch people, yes, Dutch people have to learn their languages. They say Holland is a small country, nobody speaks Dutch, so we have to try and speak this, the language of the people that are visiting us. On top of it, my parents were very... Um, my mom was a teacher, and she was very conscious about it also. What they did every evening, or at least three evenings a week, uh, at dinner, they spoke either German or French, or English with us, to get really used to the language, which is, of course, unusual. It's something that does not happen in England because of the English and because of everybody basically speaking a bit of English. But nobody speaks Dutch, hardly. Well, there's a lot of people in uh, Ibiza that are from uh, Holland at the moment. I mean, it seems to have, uh, yeah, that community has grown exponentially in in quite a dramatic fashion in the last few years. What do you think that's uh, due to? I think I know. Part of it is that at one point, some Dutch celebrities... uh, came over here, liked it a lot. They discovered Ibiza and they bought some houses here. And then it was on that, on TV shows, you know, like Big Brothers and all kinds of, you know, and they spoke about, oh, that person's there, footballers, football players and things like that. So more and more people came this way. There was a fair amount of Dutchmen at the time, but also Italians, French, English, everybody. But after COVID, we had a tremendous invasion People were fed up, I suppose, living in the house or going out and rain and this and that and the cold. And the Dutch are very good entrepreneurs and, and very hardworking people, you know. They, they have it together with businesses. So they came over here and um, started all kinds of businesses and they're doing very well. I mean, I I did live in Holland for a short spell in Tilburg when I was studying at the Academy for Journalists. That's what I studied. And uh, yeah, I found definitely what you just said. But it's only really since I've been living here that I've noticed this entrepreneurial spirit of the Dutch and the kind of way that they are really smashing it in the the kind of finance decks. They're very organized. They're extremely organized. It also attracts some other type of Dutch 
but you'll find that with the English too, you know. And so sometimes when I'm in the supermarket or something and I hear a bunch of these loud Dutch who come for the first time but they know it all better, then uh, if they ask me something, is it K? I do not want to be Dutch. You know, I do not want to be and I'm a little bit ashamed because they are loud and ignorant but I think you find that with every nation and every country but there yeah a lot of those as well especially now with the holidays but they just come on holidays they don't necessarily live here because it's not so easy to live here especially now it's, it's expensive you know, and you can hardly find anything to live the Ibisinkos have lots of room still but they don't want to rent it out Unless it's somebody that pays a fortune, which is a bit sad. That part I don't like so much, you know, they all have dollar signs in their eyes. But the new generation, again, the newest one, who are like in their 30s and working, they're quite cool because they've traveled the world, they've opened their eyes, they're part of, with all of us, they're not typical you know, from the island. Yes, they were born here, but they're opening up businesses and they get it. They, they, they get it, you know, that you have to be fair and do this and do it together with the foreigners and everything, because yes, uh, without that, they cannot live. That's simple. You know, you say that um, obviously the Ibithenkos were very tolerant when you first arrived back in the day. You could do whatever you wanted within reason. And, you know, that was one of the things that attracted you the most. I mean, how do you feel that that sensation has developed through the last, you know, 50-something years? Well, it changed um, for the next generation after I was here in the 70s. So, um, because then there came a generation, unfortunately, from just farmers and everybody, there came a generation who was born with money they all had so much land and houses and this and that and then there was a lot of this going on you know and and getting completely out of it and accidents and horrible that wasn't so nice and then came the next generation again and I found that they're very much again like their grandfathers and grandmothers and very tolerant and nice and sweet and my kids of course they grew up here and they're friends with all that generation and uh, it was lovely to see. And I know a lot of Ibisenko families simply because my kids were friends with their children. And they, they totally accept me, not necessarily as an Ibisenko, but just about. I'm part of the same life as they are, you know. And I like that a lot. And then all of a sudden I feel it's a bit, again, like in the beginning. But there was a time where it was a bit tough and it was just all about money and money and money because that generation that, that, that became so rich all of a sudden without working or doing anything, they, you know, when somebody has never worked for money, they don't respect the money. And that was there for a while and they were really doing silly things, I would say, with it all. And then when that was all passed say from the year 2000 on it all became a lot better again cleaner nicer it makes sense they all started to study they all spoke they all spoke many languages they opened up to 
how how can it be not just what's here you know and they opened up and that that's made a lot of difference i find it's what i see a lot of people ask me what do you think about ibiza now you know it has changed so much and it's expensive and this and that so, well it has everywhere if you travel it has everywhere in the world it has changed and then i rather am here <laughs> with my view and some nice friends than anywhere else so i'm still very very happy here and i still feel that little ingredient that is so special i do how would you describe that little ingredient you were kind of rubbing your fingertips together there what what is it that you can kind of almost feel in your in your person it is hard to explain it but if you've been away and you come back here and you step out of that plane it's like you you smell and you feel and you're back in that special place you recognize something that you don't feel anywhere else it's very hard to explain it it's it's a very intense island right so if you've lived here you know it's intense it's like a mirror and i like that it's a challenge but a lot of people after being here for two week holiday they think oh this is paradise i'm going to come and live here and then they live here after three months they're running away because oh i can't do this you know everything is manana and i can't do this and then that and it doesn't work like it works at home and no of course not <laughs> so i like the challenge of living here where almost never anything works properly and nobody comes on time <laughs> i like it it's the going with the flow thing and i think i've become quite i think i'm a spiritual person i'm not a religious person but i'm a spiritual person and um i feel that here that it's a, that it's a spiritual island yeah i've done lots of walks on this island i've, I've, I've visited the tanit cave i don't know how many times i've taken people up the old road through the mountain to go up there because it's an old uh, old walk yeah, i feel i feel that that which brings me to the other thing because i'm also a wedding celebrant and i do spiritual weddings in six different languages <laughs> I can imagine you must be having a pretty busy summer with uh, the return of weddings suddenly after two years of no weddings. Uh, it's not as busy as it was before. I didn't do anything for two years, but I've had the ones that couldn't do it two years ago. I've done all those now. And uh, I don't have a website. I only work word of mouth. But there are two hotels, Agroturismos, that like very much to work with me. And... Um, yeah, when there's something happening there, they call me. What do you think about, you know, you talked about Tanit's cave and the fact that she is the kind of goddess that presides over the island and what's your sort of feeling about, about that kind of uh, myth, if you like? It gives a bit of mystic. <laughs> I, in the wintertime, often had friends like from America from or from South Africa or from Australia. And, um, you know, the, the walk to there is, is, is thousands of years old. I don't know if you've ever done it. It's a small path like this, and you climb up the mountain. It's a little, um, trying to think of the word, what you call again? Trail. Well, yes, a trail, but there's a special world. Pel a pilgrimage. It is a bit of a pilgrimage to go there. 
So it's, yeah, it's mystical and it's been there for a very long time. And um, I like to think that there is a person that protects the island. I like to think it. It's a belief, so who knows? But it goes back a long, long time. So there must be something. There must have been somebody there who was quite special. And uh, that's as far as I go with it. The walk is amazing. <laughs> and the cave is amazing. It was always open in the old days. Now they've made it a tourist attraction and it's closed. And you know, somebody sits there and they'll open it for you. I think also because it was a little bit dangerous. There were some rocks falling down. But yeah, in the old days you could just go there and do your own thing which we, we often did, do a little meditation at the end of the walk and then walk back again. It's a nice thing to do. Yeah. I mean, how do you, obviously you're not working in the traditional sense apart from your celebrancy that you, you know, you obviously do and I'm guessing you're not windsurfing anymore at 74. I could be wrong. Please surprise me. <laughs> but what, what, you know, what's the number one thing that you love to do to spend your time on an island like this? Nowadays, it's very different from before because I worked 24-7 until I was 69. So it's about four and a half years ago. And I, first of all, I built my own house here in the Campo. And then I turned it into a home stay, which was really before Airbnb started. A little bit the same. And I did that for almost 18 years and had an income from that. But I never worked more than six, seven months total. And then I would travel for four or five months. And that was after I was divorced. And um, some part of it, my son was still here going to the international college. Then he went to Madrid, so I carried on my own. And then five years ago, my kids said, look, Mom, I think maybe you should stop. It's a lot of work. And it was beginning to weigh a little bit. It's a big garden, big house, the upkeep. I always thought my house is my pension. I had no idea that maybe I would get a pension from Holland because I was living here. And um, I put all the money that I made back into the house and make it nicer and better and this, this and that. And I thought one day I'll sell it. And I sold it at the right time, which meant I could buy this. And uh, that was that. <coughs> really, that's how that happened. Because my kids said, no, mom, look, you know, you, you don't have to hang in there thinking that we're going to live there. We're both in Australia. We're fine. Um, sell it now and then buy an apartment and you're free. Yeah. And that was amazing. I thought I could never live in the city, <laughs> in an apartment. But from the moment I was here, I never looked back. I never even thought about it anymore. That was then, now is now. And this, I looked for a year to find something like this. I really visualized this. This really came to me in a very special way. What's that? What changes in, you know, in all the years that you've been here have you noticed about Santillaria? Because I think it's got a lot more history than I think people that are just visiting for a week or two ever come to know. I mean, if you walk up and down the river, there's all those amazing placards of all the things that have happened here and the estuary and the water and the wildlife. Yeah, well, they've put that there lately. They've done it up, that river, and put that there for the tourist interest as well. But it was really just the old town up there and then a little bit here. There was no uh, boulevard here. There was no beach. There was just a sea coming 
towards the the road, and um, yeah, it was it was a village. It was definitely not a town. It was a village, and it wasn't so interesting. It was full of <laughs> English. <laughs> it was very English, I would say. Most, the, for example, the Dutch, they would all go to San Jose, and um, the French. And the, Ger- the Germans were in Santa Catrudes, and the French were more in San Juan. And it was like a little bit divided like that. It was quite funny. San Carlos were just local people, really. But then, <laughs> little by little, now it's the, the, the town with the most money and the best taken care of on the island. And, of course, now there... W and the Marriott and they have taken over that whole bit people have asked me what do you think about that and I said well to be very honest I don't mind because they are very well taken care of this whole thing here cleaning it and fixing things and every, it's like top notch <laughs> how can I how can I not like that you know I, I had to wait also and see, well, yeah, I wonder what that's going to be like. But right now, I'm very happy about it. It's, uh, yeah, it's not bad at all. I love living here. It's, I mean, it's so clean every day again. Yeah, okay, there's a bit of the machines and the tractors in the morning and the, and the garbage men. But, yeah, that's all right. That's for about an hour. I'm up very early every day, so I don't mind. I think, oh, yeah, that's the garbage truck. Oh, yeah, that's that's the guy with the, you know, that cleans this and stuff. And then after that, it's lovely. My daily routine is to go for a swim every morning, exercise. Then I go downstairs because they've since a year have a Pilates place. So I do Pilates twice a week, early in the morning. Either I swim before or I swim straight after. And then I walk. And then I just uh, do little projects. And if there's obviously if there's a wedding, I need to prepare for that. And I meet my people and my friends. In the summer, a lot of my old clients that came to my house are coming. Say, Anna, are you there? And, you know, what I didn't tell you, I am actually, of course, that was part of my income and part of my work. I'm a craniosacral therapist. And I've stopped working, but every now and then I get a phone call from somebody said, Anna, oh, are you still working? I would love to have a session. So I do that sometimes. I still have my table. I love doing it, but if I do it once or twice a week, then it's fun. There was a time where I did eight a day, six days a week. That's <laughs> a different story. So, yeah, I did that for 30 years. Interesting. I mean, we've done, got, got a whole episode with another craniosacral therapist, uh, Emmanuel Passes, yeah. in, the, um, in, the, in the whole uh, 130 episodes because you are episode 130 of the Reset Rebels. So this feels like a wonderful place to end. It's been a whole hour that we've been talking and um, overlooking the beautiful beach of Santillaria out to uh, the hills of Siesta. It's a magical view and I can see exactly why you're completely in love with living here. And um, I'm really, really grateful that you would invite me into your home for today's podcast. Thank you so much, Anna. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure and fun as well. It's a rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel.
Precept Rebel.